Um, we'll just get started here. All right, my recording's going. Is your recording going, Carl? Sweet. So welcome to the show. Um, we've got uh, special guest Eric Olette here with us, at least for a little while. Um, how's it going out there? You playing hooky from work or what? Don't forget to unmute that microphone there, big lad. Oh, he must have a must be having office hours or something. That's okay. Well, um, I thought I'd get started with this recording um, of uh, part of the concert that we played last weekend with our new Stuart Highlanders pipe band. Uh, Carl and Eric and I were formerly Oren Moore, and then we got together with these guys, and um, the result is pretty cool, pretty exciting. So uh, I thought I would play a little bit and that we could enjoy it, and then we'll get on with the show from there. So here goes nothing.
I guess the uh, applause got cut off. Oh, well. Missed people screaming and jumping from the bleachers and stuff. So, yeah, that's the new, uh, that's the new uh, project that we've all been working on. And uh, I don't know. What do you think, Big Lad? What's your status report? Are you out there? I'm there, yeah. I'm having lunch. Um, I, status is good. Life's good. Loving it. Pretty good product yeah. there for, you know, for don't four your, four uh, big practices right, together. Yeah, don't turn your camera on. I, I don't want to have to watch you eat. That's a sloppy mess right now. I'm kidding. It's not that bad. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I mean, um, I would I would say that the band is further along uh, for March than Oren Moore ever was at, at this particular time period. Um, at least certainly as far as how well prepared everybody has been and stuff like that. So we're pretty excited. So, um, so there you go. That was in uh, Chelmsford, Mass. It was a really nice um, theater there that we ended up playing in. Uh, nice big stage. Uh, there was like a pit there and everything. And, and a pretty good crowd. It looked, uh, Don was there apparently, um, although I didn't get a chance to meet up with him. And uh, yeah, it's pretty cool. Andy Adams, who has attended our show in the past, was also there, and um, he won something or other, and he was pretty excited about it. So that's. Cool. I think that was the. Uh, I think he won the Our Journey book, um, and yeah. Yeah, he did. And he jumped up in the crowd, and, and yeah, I, I didn't realize who that was until you just until that came out. It's really funny. Um, yeah, I'm just doing a quick thing here. Okay. Yeah, cool. So, uh, oh, you had to drive with Andy Adams. That's even more exciting. Uh, it was cool, though. It was fun to get out and do some piping again. I mean, we uh, we had a long winter of getting stuff going um, with the with the new group, and um, and it was nice to actually be out in public playing stuff. And uh, in ten days or so, at this point, we have our first competition at the indoor games in New Hampshire. So we're pretty stoked about that as well. So things are going. I need to uh, get my solos going though, because I got to play solos in ten days also. So you and me both, buddy. Yeah. New read time. You getting a new solo read? It's the used band read, but you know. It happens. New, new for solos. I'm too cheap. All right. So the topic of the day today is uh, top secret bagpipe tricks, and. Um, uh, as you could probably tell if you read the email, my thesis is that there really aren't that many top secret things going on in the world when it comes to some of these topics. So I was hoping that Eric and Carl could share with us some of their top secret tricks, and I will participate as well. Um, and, you know, maybe, you know, you can help me either prove or disprove my theory that there's no magic going on when it comes to... Uh, when it comes to piping. So let's start with the first the first jumping off point, which is tuning. So uh, Eric Olette and or Carl, what are some of your top, se top secret tuning tricks that you use that make you such a, a, a so good at tuning your instrument? 
wants to go first? Big lad. I, I don't think that um, I don't think that any of the tricks have much to do with tuning so much as preparing your instrument and yourself to do a good job tuning, right? So pipe maintenance and uh, and really being a master at tone production. Those are the important steps. And uh, from there on out, I mean, tuning is tuning is the last piece of the puzzle, as we know. And uh, and I think that you know there's a little bit of ear ear training that goes on there. But for me, the tricks aren't. What do you mean that tuning is the last piece of the puzzle? I mean, like when I get my pipes out, I try to fine tune them right away. Isn't that what I should be doing? No, and I know you don't do that. You, you shouldn't be fine-tuning them right away because things aren't going to be in equilibrium. You're going to have to play the reeds in. You're going to have to get the instrument warm. And, uh, you know, there's a lot There's a lot more that goes into it than just getting the pipes out and, and uh, tuning drones and going. So one of the big things for me, I think a lot of it really boils down to, after the obvious pipe maintenance things that we all talk about, I think being a master of tone production is where it's important. And from there on out, uh, obviously, learning learning how to tune your instrument is important, but knowing a thing or two about playing your instrument in and always having, uh, you know, always being, keeping the pipe pressure right in the sweet spot, those are the, the really important, uh, important aspects of it. So you are suggesting, uh, this sounds kind of radical to me, so you're suggesting that a lot of tuning has to do with getting my bagpipe set up properly, and getting a sweet sound out of the bagpipe. Can you expand any more on what you mean by getting a sweet sound? Because I've never heard of that before. Like, I just kind of thought that whenever, as long as my chanter is sounding, that's pretty much all I need to worry about. And, and maybe blowing steadily, but what do you mean by tonal production? Yeah, so, I mean, we talk about it a lot in the classes on the dojo, right? So the big thing is understanding how uh, pressure and energy delivered to the reed equates to generating harmonics from the reed. So um, the basic principle there is that you have some sort of kind of logarithmic response, right, where as your reed first starts to sound from from nothingness, whoa, whoa. first starts logarithmic? to Logarithmic? I'll explain. Yeah, hang on. I, I don't know that word. You have to explain that a little bit better. I think okay. it's like a I think it's a lumberjack related term. Like it has to do with when you cut down a tree, um, how fast that falls down. Guys, I'm not here to give you a math lesson. I'm simply going to yes, f of x equals log x, and what that basically means is that at the start of the response, i.e., when your reed first starts to vibrate pitch and harmonics being generated increase very rapidly with small increases in pressure. And once you get to the top end of the range of vibrancy of the reed, then things start to stabilize in terms of the pitch for changes in pressure. And uh, more importantly, you get up into the range where you're generating more higher frequency harmonics out of the reed. That's the important take home there. So That's interesting. Not, so, not uh, to get mathy. So like... Um, so is like what is harmonics like? Does that mean like my chant is playing harmonies like on its own or something? Or you know, like, uh, well, you know, not e- not exactly. Of course, you might have to fill in a little bit here because once I get in too deep into this stuff, my knowledge is a little is a little shaky. But basically, the idea is that anytime you have, have 
say, some pitch being played, let's say it's a low A, that's a, for, for argument's sake, a 440 hertz pitch, right? But it's not just a 440 on top of it. There's a ton of higher frequencies that contribute to that sound. And the more of those higher frequencies being generated, the more rich the sound becomes out of the channer, right? So, uh, and, and those higher frequencies can only be generated by putting more energy through the reed. It's a higher energy frequency. It takes more energy to produce. So, that said, what is this? This is, um, this is something that I found. Uh, I've been putting together some materials, but this is a frequency response meter, um, like an image from what you might get from a digital frequency response um, thing that measures what frequencies are being produced and at what intensities they're being produced. So um, you can see here, um, this, and this is very similar to what a bagpipe looks like. Um, if you play it, and I've actually, I actually did this in music school. It was pretty fascinating. The only difference being we can see that uh, this looks more like a voice uh, because there are these fluctuations in pitch, like it's got a sort of curved thing. A bagpipe, mm -hmm. at, least, at least a relatively well-blown bagpipe, would have – it would be relatively straight lines. But you can see the harmonic series in action here, and what the harmonic series is – is a series of overtones that occur um, when uh, when you're producing a harmonic tone as opposed to an inharmonic tone, um, and that means that here's the fundamental pitch. So if if I'm and so picture a bagpipe here, if I'm playing low A here, this is the highest intensity sound. Okay, you can see there's some background sound in there. These little like low fre this must be the room low frequency down here. Um, but then, um, so this is the bass frequency sound, and then you can see other harmonics are produced um, above the sound in a harmonic series. So uh, the first one that is produced is twice the frequency of the initial frequency. The next one is a ratio of 3 over 2, and then 4 over 3, and so on and so forth. It's called the harmonic series. It's very cool. Um, and you can sort of see these going up. And as we go up in harmonics, at least generally speaking, the energy decreases on each additional harmonic until eventually you can't hear it anymore. Okay? And that's what's called the harmonic series. And each and every one of our bagpipe notes will produce this. Right? So you can see this one's slightly lower. And then you can see this one, whatever the singer was doing, they started at a pitch and then purposefully dropped it down like that. Um, and you can see how the other harmonics respond to that. But anyway, um, all, all harmonic instruments uh, produce a harmonic series. And the interesting thing about it uh, is that depending on the response of each of the harmonics, it'll give you a different timbre. That's this word. And you see it sometimes on score sheets. It'll give you a different timbre depending on how the harmonics are arranged. So, for example, the difference between a clarinet and a flute, um, as far as being able to identify the sound of them, um, doesn't have a whole lot to do with the fundamental, but it has to do with um, how many pronounced harmonics exist and, you know, uh, physics and all that sort of stuff and the shape of, of the chamber has a lot to do with that.
Okay. Now the bagpipe has an extremely rich harmonic spectrum. So each and every one of these harmonics is going to be pretty um, intense. Um, and then what Eric Allette was getting to before is the more energy we put through our reed, the more intense some of these higher harmonics can be. And so we get a richer sound um, with the more energy we put through the reed. Okay, so, um, and if we are underblowing, if we're just barely blowing the reed, um, then we might not really get overly intense harmonic range here, which will cause a less interesting sound. All right. So uh, anyway, I kind of I found this image online. Um, it, it would look like there's a program called Voice Viewer, um, where you can you can try this on your own. So what do you think about that, Eric? I think that's pretty much what I was driving at. Yeah, what a absolutely. nice visualization of it. And then, of course, the big trick is being able to be producing that rich harmonic sound all of the time, right? So a lot of people might have sort of brilliant brief flashes of this, but but being, being an expert at tone production means that, uh, I mean, yes, you're a steady blower, but it's more importantly that you know where that sweet spot of the reed is and you know when you're getting a rich harmonic sound and you're an expert at producing that tonal quality all the time. And from there, tuning is just icing on the cake. Yeah. It's a little tape here, okay. raising a sink, whatever. Yeah, um, I'm with you on that one. And then um, Nate is asking, um, this, I might be about to get a little bit geeky on you guys, so apologies for that, um, but... I'm getting my drawing tool out. And he says, do you think this is what is meant when pipers talk about getting a broader sound? And the answer is, I think absolutely this is what is meant. Let me show you. Um, here, here's the interesting thing, right, Nate? So um, I'm going to do a little whiteboard here. And maybe I'm going to go to this. Clan Campbell's gathering is going away. So here's the thing. Uh, here's... In, as far as broadness of sound is concerned. We've got a couple of things going on here, right? So we have the ch chanter. Let's say the chanter is playing low A, okay? And we have harmonics. So we have, and, and let me draw a little bit fatter here. Uh, let's say we have low A here. We've got, let's say this is our primary harmonic. Um, this is our next harmonic, a little bit less intense, right? A little bit less. We have these this harmonic spectrum going on. Okay, and then the interesting thing is we also that this is where bagpipes are so interesting. We also have a tenor drone, which is actually produces a fundamental an octave lower than this. Um, it produces a fundamental an octave lower than our chanter low A. However, the first harmonic of that is one octave higher. So the first harmonic of the tenor drone will line up and resonate with the first harmonic of that guy. And that's where the tenor drone becomes so interesting because some, but not all, of the harmonics of the tenor drone line up. And then the other ones will produce a nice harmony with the chanter. Right? Yes. So Lynn, Lynn you're, uh, you're on to me there. 
Um, and then it, it sort of works its way out from there. So the next one will play the pitch of E, right? So this harmonic, it's, it's actually going to, it's going to be one octave lower than the second harmonic of here. And anyway, my point would only be that we get, we get sort of a, for all intents and purposes, we get sort of a randomized resonance pattern um, having to do, like it's not going to be all the harmonics, but it'll be some of them. And if we looked really closely, we could figure out exactly which ones, right? Um, how, yeah, and then Lynn says it produces the chorus effect. And this is where the broadness really comes into play. If we can get maximum harmonics of the chanter read, and if our drones are set up nice and harmonically, we're going to have really interesting resonating harmonics in different patterns. And then, so that was the middle one. This is the tenor up here. And then now we add the bass drone on top of that. And the bass drone starts way down here. Its, her, its first harmonic resonates with the tenor. Okay? And then it's... Uh, the next harmonic here is going to resonate with uh, the second harmonic of the tenor. It's not going to resonate. It's going to uh, be in a perfect octave below that. And it's going to be two perfect octaves below that. And anyway, we end up with this crisscross of all sorts of different harmonics that are happening. This is why the bagpipe is so rich and so mesmerizing. Okay? Um, now, this is if we just play low A. However, if we play a note like E, well, what does the harmonic spectrum look like on E? And what harmonics from the drones does it resonate with? And I can't do the math. I'm not that smart. I can't do the math for you right now. But my point is, if we have a nice, rich chanter sound and a well-tuned drone sound, this is, um, this is what makes the bagpipe really, really immaculate. Now, some people are sensitive to this fact. Some pipers and some pipe bands are sensitive to this idea and they, they shoot for the maximum resonance, that maximum chorus effect, right? Other pipers uh, don't really think about this too much and uh, don't really work to maximize the harmonic richness of their bagpipe. And subsequently, they don't hold up, right, in, in a competition, say. So like Field Marshal Montgomery is clearly maximizing this effect where other grade one bands are not, and that's why their sound doesn't compare. Um, and then Lynn, Lynn is using a lot of big words, but you're right. That's why, um, you know, we have just, that's why we tune in just temperament um, is because it really, really resonates with all the drones. You are correct, Lynn. Yeah, so Gary's big on Bill Buckingham. He, he did a cool YouTube video, um, which I'll find a link for. Um, Gary, that video is both re related and not entirely related. He's talking more about exactly how the physics of, of the sound coming out of the bagpipes are. Um, he doesn't seem to get a whole lot into harmonic theory, does he? I don't know. I only watched the video once. Uh, Bill Buckingham bagpipe. I'm just finding this for you. Yeah. So here it is. Um, so, But it's pretty cool. I urge everyone to check out that YouTube video. Um, but... Um, Gee, for someone who didn't know anything about harmonics 10 minutes ago, um, I did pretty good here. Yeah, so Gary, you're, you're, you're right about that. 
Um, anyone who's curious about exactly how um, tones and tuning, um, like exactly how it works um, to get out of the instrument and into the air, that's a great video. Nate says using two different tenorids to get a broad sound. Um, my thoughts on this are um, theoretically, uh, theoretically that would have a minimal effect on the breadth of the sound, um, as long as you had a nice harmonic tenor drone reed that you started with. Um, it's true different reeds will emphasize different harmonics. That's definitely true. Um, you know, it, it's definitely possible and definitely true. It might somehow increase the breadth of sound. John McCain says, how, many, how could a grade one band or any band ignore the harmonics? Um, that's a good question. Some of them do, though. Although, it's, John, to be honest, it's more, way more rare now than it used to be. So, so 10 years ago, uh, there were bands that sort of lost focus on the harmonics. Um, that's way less the case now. Like the top, the top, um, like the bands in the final at the Worlds now are all extremely harmonic. Yeah, and then there's a, there's a whole bunch of stuff going on about rocket tenor reeds. Um, but conceptually, the harmonic spectrum stays the same there. Um, I mean, it might be ever so slightly different. And remember, the shape of your drone and exactly how it, you know, uh, if, if one of the drones has maybe swelled slightly or something like that, or um, there's a slightly different contour or anything like that, could theoretically, um, in a very minor way, affect the voicing. And Lynn says the position on the pin has an effect. It does have an effect, yeah. The, the bigger the resonating chamber is inside the drone um, will you know, help things, um, will help things project and stuff like that. But again, it's ever so slight. I think it's a little bit overrated. Um, a lot of the mythology surrounding uh, where the drone is tuning on the pin. That's just a personal opinion. What do you think about that, Eric? The tuning on the pin mythology. I don't know. It's an interesting question. I mean, like, I, I do generally try to get get the tenors certainly tuning up a little bit higher. I think for me, I I feel as though they're a little bit more stable in that position. Maybe, you know, not necessarily um, more harmonic, uh, although, although maybe a bit. But then, like, when it comes to the bass drone read, like, there's, you know, like your Donald McPherson types, right? Like, he used to play with the bottom tuning section way, way, way up which is fine for a solo player. Um, and that was, you know, I think his, he was after a richer, more harmonic bass sound there. Um, but, of course, in a band, we can't really do that because that's going to be putting you into double-toning trouble. So um, I think there's a little bit of a point to it, but for me, certainly within a band, um, you know, getting my pipes up on my shoulder takes a way higher precedence than squeaking a little bit extra out of the bass drone sound. Yeah. See, Patrick disagrees with me and says the sound becomes much more brash when a tenor is low on the pin. Now, if the tenor is way down on the pin, um, I might agree with you, Patrick, but I, um, 
you know, as far as, you know, I, I think it's negligible. Needless to say, I mean, a drone that was resting all the way, like, like really close to the bottom of the pin, right? There's basically no resonating chamber there. And so, yeah, the sound that you get is not going to really um, project the way that you want it to. Um, but, but again, I, you know, uh, it's not something I lose sleep over. Let me put it that way. It's something that some folks will lose sleep over. It's like, uh-oh, my tenor isn't, you know, tuning perfectly in the spot where my resonating chamber is going to be the best size. Um, you know, again, I try to I try to keep an open mind. For example, the crozier's, um, at least in my pipes, the crozier's tune lower on the pin um, than let's say, um, than let's say the canards would. Um, but they they produce a distinctly different harmonic sound, which is not necessarily brash. It's just a little bit buzzy. Um, and, you know, I don't know. I think it has to do with the reed, has to do with the shape of the bore. Yeah. Nate says, do you think there is an ultimate combination of pipe maker, chanter, chanter reed, and drone reed that emphasize a harmonic sound? A sound? Now, Nate, that's a dangerous question. And I think the beauty of that question is that everybody has their own opinion and searches for these things in different ways. So I don't really think there's an ultimate combination. There are certainly some very good combinations. For me, the ultimate combination would be, um, you know, the ultimate combination that absolutely maximizes the beauty of the instrument is going to be um, cane, cane drone reeds, uh, cane drone reeds and, you know, a well set up chanter reed. The cane drone reeds are just unparalleled in terms of harmonics. However, the catch-22 there is, at least for me, um, I had trouble getting the cane to stabilize enough to play for extended periods of time without them going out of tune. Yeah, cane and sheep. Yeah, I agree with Lynn. It's a trade-off. There are some magicians out there. And, of course, the whole point of today's um, stuff is that there's not really any magic involved, but some pipers have figured out um, how to stabilize their tenor drone reads. Um, you know, I've, I feel like I've come close from time to time. It's just a really, it, it takes a large investment of time for me um, to be able to do that. So I end up taking the shortcut and throwing in the synthetics. Recall uh, your conversation with Alex Gandy at Winter Storm when he was telling you about what Andrew Wright told him about sheep and cane. Yeah. It was interesting. Um, it was interesting, and I really appreciated what he said to me, which was along the lines of, um, you know, the soloist philosophy of a lot of the successful soloists, who, needless to say, are masters of their instrument. Um, and even though they would agree that sheep and cane produces a brilliant sound, the philosophy is, um, I don't know, what did, what did he say that it was? I'm, it was something like it's something like sheep and canes not gonna go the extra mile to win you a whole lot of contests, but it'll yeah. definitely lose you a whole lot. Yeah, exactly, exactly right. So sheep and cane sounds nice, but it's rare that the sheep and cane is going to be the reason that you win a contest. However, it's very common that sheep and cane is the reason that you'd lose one, at least in the solo. So it is a trade-off, and then I think it's definitely possible for bands. Uh, really well-disciplined bands um, to 
to play with Kane. And the thing about the Kane is if it goes ever so slightly out in a band, um, it won't be the end of the world to the extent that it would be in a P-Brock contest. Anyway, let's um, let's change topics because I want to uh, – or at least uh, check in. Yeah, like let's change topics to practicing because this was awfully fun to talk about. But um, uh, but we need to go on to the magic of practicing. So um, how do we avoid, you know, wandering around in circles uh, when we practice? How do we actually – move ourselves forward. I mean, it seems like, you know, it seems like no matter how hard I practice, I never get anywhere. What would you say to that? I don't actually feel this way, but that's the question on the table. Nate feels the same way. Lynn says structure is the key. What do you think, Big Lad? How do you, how do you practice to actually improve? Well, when I'm looking to improve, as opposed to just playing for fun, um, for me there's a lot more of uh, self-critique that goes into it, right? Because I don't, I mean, I don't see someone regularly for lessons, so it's kind of up to me to figure out what's going on in my playing and what uh, what needs to be improved, and that could be in a number of different areas, right? It could be in my bagpipe sound. It could be, um, it could be in my musicality. It could be in my technique. Um, and I think I have sort of different approaches for all of those sort of different general areas. Like, I mean, one of the things that we preach a lot is, um, you know, certainly in in mastering your basic rhythms and your your phrasing and, and musical points, working through new tunes in um, in small manageable chunks, you know, phrase by phrase or line by line, um, looking for common phrases that appear throughout the tunes and getting those down uh, holistically rather than figuring out what order of notes are and then having to work backwards to get your technique fit in or your or you're phrasing the way you want it, or or getting all of the different dot-cut rhythms just so. Um, bite-sized chunks are really important. Um, when it comes to instrument quality, I mean, that's a little bit different. I mean, a lot of times I think what I would be doing is uh, sort of sitting back and playing through some simpler tunes to uh, be able to focus on what it is that's going on with my instrument, right? Whether I'm whether I'm really playing in the sweet spot of the reed, whether I need to focus on tuning or or what's going on there. Um, but it's still all sort of under the same umbrella of not trying to do too much at once and uh, and sort of working to improve things holistically. Yeah, I'm with you on that one. I think for me. Um I, I agree with you. For me, Pbrock is such a great venue for bagpipe development as well. Um, and it's interesting. It's not so much the ground and opening variations because in those variations, I'm focused on uh, I'm focused on the phrasing and everything. And I'm not, you know, I certainly want my bagpipe to sound awesome, but it's not necessarily a time when I'm going to really focus on developing my technique. Uh, but what's interesting is as soon as I get into the variations where the expression of them 
and I, hopefully I won't be crucified for saying this, but the expression of the more typical variations is, is a little bit more generic and, and certainly more repetitive than you'll find in the grounds. So that's where I find myself thinking, you know, let's see exactly how steady I can keep my bagpipe. You know, let's, let's, uh, can I keep my bagpipe locked in when I go from my terlots into that cadence of the singling variations? You know, singling variations is really, you know, um, it's really cool. It's, you know, you can really get into it and, um, not waver the blowing, I guess, is what I'm saying there. So, um, and then the other thing I would say is, one of the big things for me when it comes to practicing is to develop systems that are reliable um, and to sort of, um, to, to at least have an overarching uh, generic plan that I'm going to apply to each and every practice session. Uh, for example, Right now, when I prepare for my solos, um, I have about an hour that I'm able and or willing to spend. Um, and I need to make sure that that hour is organized properly. So what I do is I work on some of the problem spots. This is my routine. And as a matter of fact, I can, um, let's get rid of this guy and bring up uh, my notes again. I don't know what that mess, subliminal message was, but there it is. So here's a little notepad. So here's what I do is um, I um, work on a few problem spots from yesterday uh, to get warmed up. Okay. And then once the pipe is going, then I play, um, uh, then I play a horn pipe and, you know, my horn pipes and jigs. Uh, for a little while, okay. Then I play, um, then I play two double MSRs, um, which may or may not be true. And then, and then I play two P rocks, okay. Um, and then, see, what I like about this is, uh, some days I wouldn't, I wouldn't do a double MSR. Some days I would do two MSRs. Right, like, uh, and I have to have four, right? I'm sure Eric Olette is pretty similar to this, by the way, as well. So, um, yeah, this is my routine, right? And then the next day, if I if I just copy this out, so I have a two-day practice cycle, and then the next day. I play the other two MSRs, the other two P-Rocks. And, and again, this is general, right? Eric says his structure is looser. I mean, mine is certainly looser um, in the early stages. But this is, I'm a professional piper, and this is just a routine that works well for me. And it's, um, it's routine, it's predictable, and if you'll notice, right, it, it allows for upward mobility. Um, and it, it helps me keep all my stuff going. So um, I work on a few of the problem spots from yesterday to get warmed up, right? So that spot that wasn't quite clean enough, um, you know, or the P-Brock where the phrasing didn't feel quite right, 
or where I made a mental error or something, I'm going to work on that stuff here for about 10 to 15 minutes. Then I'm going to lock my pipes in a little bit. Then I'm going to play all my horn pipes and all my jigs. And I usually just kind of blast through them. Um, I, I don't feel like hornpipe jig contests are overly sacred. I'm not, you know, uh, I'm not trying to win a gold medal in hornpipes and jigs. Although every now and then, you know, I'll pick up a nice prize there or it'll go particularly well. Um, but that's why I put that one first. It's not that important to me. And so I use that to sort of get myself even more warmed up and to get, get the rhythm flowing. Then I play an MSR or two, or maybe I play a double MSR. Um, now, the MSRs are definitely more important to me, and so um, the pipe will be extra locked in. My hands will be really nice and warmed up, so I get my MSR going. And then I do another one. Um, and keeping mental note of things that need to be improved, but, you know, whatever. And then I'll go into two P-Brocks, and then maybe at the end of that I'll have some fun and jam out a little bit. Cool. So Don says, what do you recommend for a grade four soloist? I'm not sure what a QM is. Quick march. Oh, like a 2-4 march. Yeah, so um, again, um, I think grade four is so different than pro, right? Like pro... If you're, a, if you're a pro piper, it pretty much means your fundamentals have to be really solid. So I don't have to spend a ton of time developing my raw fundamentals like a grade four player would. Okay, so that's, that's the first thing. So I would have a similar routine. Um, maybe it would look something like, it would look something like this. Um, Right? It might look something like that. Okay? And you'll notice that's not going to take a full hour, right? I think that's okay. I think you might take the other half hour that you have to practice and just like practice raw fundamentals. Okay? And then uh, that might be your two pronged attack. So there you go, Nate. So so there's a, this is this is sort of like a rehearsal block, and then this is the fundamentals block. Does that make sense? Because you do need to rehearse. You can't practice fundamentals all the time, okay? But you also can't just rehearse. You can't just play through tunes. Yeah, so Kathy, I would definitely, I think it would depend. If a, um, if a competition is coming up soon, you want to rehearse more and you want to prioritize the rehearsal segment more than fundamentals. And then if you have some time between now and your next competition, you'd want to focus more heavily on the fundamentals and probably do those first in a session. 
But anyway, draw, draw it out. It doesn't have to be overly specific, but, you know, draw out a plan that's repeatable that helps you improve. Cool. So let's move on. Patrick had a great question earlier. So Patrick was at Winter Storm here. I'll copy. Um, I think this is a great question. I cannot figure out why the drones that are seemingly in tune will continue to be tuned by the performer. Are they perhaps detuning slightly, extrapolating future pitch change of the chanter? Can I just not hear that it's out of tune? Yeah. See, Tom, I, I would not suggest that. So Tom suggests breaking up your um, performance pieces with fundamental work. I would not suggest that, right? There's a difference between rehearsal and development, and that's why. So um, I, I would, you know, I would be a bigger fan of rehearsing in one block and then developing in other blocks, just so that your mind can fo focus for long periods of time. For example, fundamental work. Whenever you step away from fundamental work, um, you know, it's it's that extended period of time that's really going to help you develop. But um, but of course it's up to you and people have different opinions, so that's fine as well. Um, but I would suggest not breaking it up. Um, so, Eric, what do you think about this question from Patrick McLaren? Uh, I think generally he's uh, he's on to something there, right? So when I was playing at Winter Storm um, this year, I was particularly unlucky to be very early on in the silver medal and there was a really, really big temperature swing between the upstairs tuning room, then the downstairs final tuning room, and finally into the performance room. Um, and so I did my best. I mean, I had to sort of work with what I was given, um, and I, I didn't have a whole lot of time in each of those places to where I felt like my instrument was settling out well. And, and not only that, but I mean, the temperature swing was so great that it wasn't just, it wasn't just that there was sort of a holistic shift in the pitch. I mean, I started to have slight balance issues too. My bottom hand, uh, notes got a little bit flatter and, and such when I was going into, uh, going into the, the competition room and stuff like that. So, I mean, so extrapolation was absolutely on my mind. Um, for that performance, so I ended up, you know, and probably at the sacrifice of some slight degree of harmonic richness, right, ended up uh, flattening off my drones a little bit from where where the equilibrium pitch of the chanter was at the start of my tune, knowing that I think I'm going to drop out a little bit more, and I want to be ready for that so that as I do, I can systematically increase the pitch or increase the pressure I'm playing at so that I bring the chanter pitch up to stay with the drones and at the same time not end up being so high on the pressure that I'm going to start to squeak and, and have all sorts of weird things going on. So, yeah, extrapolation for sure. 
Yeah, and I think that's exactly what it is. So a lot of times, uh, Patrick, um, yeah, the drones, I mean, any great player, like when you listen to the gold medal at Kansas City, great players, their drones are going to be locked in, and they're going to be pretty darn close to the chanter, um, you know, basically all the time because their fundamental tuning skills are so good. And the reason they continue to change it has exactly to do with what you speculate, which is that um, they're trying to find the absolute best point for those drones based on what they figure is happening to the chanter. And remember, like, they might already be kind of underblowing on that read a hair because it's sharpened up. So you might not notice it, but the player will notice it. Um, and so that's exactly why. You know, even though even though it sounds perfectly in tune, it doesn't mean that um, it's perfectly set for the performance. So, yeah, that's absolutely what's going on. And that's the name of the game, you know. How do you keep your pipes locked for the entire performance? All right. Let's call it in there for today because uh, I think that's as good a place as any to stop. Um, and so uh, thanks for coming today, guys. 60 people came out. Um, we're starting to average quite a few more. So thanks for your support and thanks for listening. And for those who don't know, these are always posted at podcast.dojouniversity.com. And you can subscribe to it on iTunes and stuff. So if you um, like to listen to podcasts on your computer or if you want them to automatically <clears throat> update to your phone or whatever. Um, it can be good. So so there we go. So Eric, thanks for standing in. Vin Janowski's away for a few weeks, so it's good of Eric to be able to pop in and give us some knowledge. No problem, dude. Yeah, thanks for doing that, and we'll see you guys later. See you guys. <laughs>